This is 51 Days of Terror, the Seminal Heights serial killings, a News Channel 8 investigation. We poured through hundreds of pages of documents and hours of interviews to shed light on the victims and the people at the center of the case, all to answer one of the biggest questions, why? I'm your host, Amanda Shavari. It's Tuesday, November 14th, 2017. Tamika Foster has six extra minutes to get ready this morning. She usually leaves for work at 4.40 a.m., and she picks up her mother-in-law on the way to her job. But this morning, she doesn't have to, so she pulls out of her driveway at 4.46. Tamika turns onto Nebraska Avenue and heads north. She notices something strange, a man walking from the side of the street onto the road where she's driving. Since the murders, the city's added more streetlights, so she gets a good look at the guy. He's African-American, tall. Tamika guesses about six feet tall or six one, and slender. He's wearing all black, a black windbreaker. It's long, hitting just below the waistband of his pants, and the hood is pulled up. He's also wearing black pants. The man is walking with his hands to his side. He isn't looking around or doing anything suspicious, but he stands out to her because there's no one else around. It's just after 4.50 in the morning, so it's pretty desolate. Maybe something else gave her pause, too. Tamika later tells police his walk reminded her of those videos she's seen on the news recently. Videos of the Seminole Heights serial killer. Less than two minutes later, another person is dead. This is day 37. Ronald Felton rides his bike to the new season Apostolic Ministries Incorporated on Tuesday and Friday mornings to work at the food pantry. He usually shows up around 3 in the morning, but since the killings in Seminole Heights, he's been showing up earlier. People start lining up for food around 1 a.m., so he wants to be out there with them, comforting them as they wait in the darkness for the food pantry to open at 7.30. Ronald is black. Everyone calls him Ronnie. He's tall and thin and keeps his salt-and-pepper-colored hair cut short, sometimes bordering on going totally bald. He has a close-shaven goatee. Today, he's wearing a gray shirt, jeans, and a jacket. Ronnie usually shakes hands with everyone in line when they come out, but this morning is different. This morning, he's giving everyone a hug instead. Maybe he can sense that something isn't quite right, that they'll need the memory of that reassuring touch later. As far as we know, this was the only noticeable change in his routine. He stands outside with everyone else, as usual, coaxing anyone who thinks they want to leave to stay in line so they don't miss out on the food. Around 4.15, Ronnie walks over to the laundromat across the street, pulls out his cell phone, and makes a call to his twin brother, Reginald. They talk for a few minutes, then he tells Reginald he's heading to the laundromat to use the bathroom. He says he'll call him later. Some of the people waiting outside came with the homeless advocacy group Metropolitan Ministries. They were shuttled in in a white van, now sitting in the church parking lot. They get there early, around 2.15. As the time ticks on, they start to get cold. The sun won't be up for a little while to give them any relief, so they head back to the van to warm up. A woman takes a seat in the back. She sits sideways, so she has a view of the back and side windows. She spots Ronnie. She's a regular at the pantry, so she knows him pretty well. 
He's across the street, walking on the sidewalk. It looks like he's on the phone again. She watches him start walking back towards the church. Then she sees something else, something terrifying. There's a man running towards Ronnie. He's dressed in black clothing and wearing a black baseball cap. He points the gun at Ronnie's back and shoots. Ronnie falls, and the suspect stands over him, straddling Ronnie's body with his legs. He pulls the trigger four more times. Then he takes off, leaving Ronnie lying face down in the street. With a killer on the loose, the police presence is high in Seminole Heights this morning. It takes less than a minute for law enforcement to start showing up on the scene. It's 4.51 a.m. Officers see Ronnie's body on the ground and notice he's been shot in the head. One of the officers notices a guy in a dark hoodie running from the scene. He calls the police chopper to find the guy, but they can't track him down. To be clear, that might not have been the suspect. More than one witness reported seeing several people running from the scene after hearing gunshots. An officer puts on a pair of gloves and feels for Ronnie's pulse. Nothing. 60-year-old Ronnie Felton is dead. And a killer could still be in the neighborhood. Police immediately lock Seminole Heights down. This is the fourth murder and the third time they've known the suspect could be close by. They need to find this guy. They need the killings to stop. No one goes in or out of the neighborhood without checking with officers first. They check every car and make a note of everyone inside before letting anyone through the perimeter. Officers create a log to keep track of everyone they let through. 6.28 a.m. Miguel, he's driving a silver Mazda. 6.52 a.m. Latroya, she has four children and they're walking to a nearby school. 7.51, Alicia, she's in a gold Chrysler. It goes on like this until a few minutes past noon, seven hours after Ronnie's murder. Police are combing through every part of the neighborhood. A chopper scans the side streets to find the suspect witnesses described. No luck. Canine teams go through the area, focusing on an alleyway the suspect may have gone through. They find a few leads, but not enough to track down the suspect. Federal agents even start going door to door, looking for leads. FBI! Good afternoon, man. How are you? Again, nothing that helps them catch the killer right now. It's frustrating for law enforcement. Officers are constantly patrolling Seminole Heights right now. They even brought in help from other agencies to cover almost every square inch of the neighborhood. And the second no officers are around, the killer strikes. What's worse, he gets away for the fourth time. The one witness, we finally had a witness. We never had anything prior to them. And the one witness said if your officer had been there 15 seconds earlier, he would have seen it. Um, you know, it's just such a vast area. It sounds like it's a very small, confined area, but unless you can put cops on every single corner, it's just not that easy. This is Police Chief Brian Dugan. The interesting part, I, re I remember so much of these like it was yesterday, the, the Ronald Felton murder happened just before 5 a.m. It was uh, my birthday, I turned 51, and I get a phone call at about quarter to five saying we just had a fourth murder. And, you know, 
uh, it was, you know, it was my birthday. I'll never forget it. Um, and I was out there. We searched the neighborhood till daylight. Couldn't find anybody. This murder is different from the others. The first to happen in the morning hours. Before, the victims were killed at night in the cover of darkness. But Ronnie was shot just an hour before sunrise. There were people standing around outside of the church, making it easier for the killer to be seen. It seems like he was getting bolder. Chief Dugan feared the next victim could be a cop. And my biggest concern is that he was going to kill a police officer. And I felt once he killed a police officer, it would put a panic on, into our city. Um, that was, that was, you know, we wanted to catch him, but I was very concerned in the back of my mind, if he kills a cop, you know, it's really going to turn this place upside down. And that was something I never said publicly, but I did war warn my cops, you may be the next person out there. Police do land a lead in the investigation. They have another video. It's grainy, in black and white. It shows the suspect crossing the street and shooting Ronald Felton. They believe it's the same person seen on surveillance video before and after Benjamin Mitchell's murder. This is their guy. They just need to find him. I've been watching the serial killer news, watching, listening, praying, and for that to happen to my brother, to be shot four times at close rate, yes. that's hard. Linda Cunningham is one of Ronnie's 14 siblings. This is her speaking at her brother Reginald's home just hours after Ronnie was shot. They're all trying to process what happened. It doesn't seem real to them yet. Ronnie's brothers wonder if they're dreaming. Could he really be gone? Ronnie's siblings aren't the only ones in mourning. He has children, all of them grown, but there's never an age where losing your father is easy. It has to be hitting Reginald especially hard right now. Ronnie was his twin brother. They've been connected since they were in the womb. They spoke just minutes before he was killed, and now he'll never see Ronnie alive again. All he has left is the memories of them growing up together. We have a lot of fun together. We joke, play, kick around, you know, stuff like that. He warned Ronnie about being out in Seminole Heights with a killer on the loose. But when it came to helping others, he wouldn't be swayed. I talked to him, but he, he got his own ways. You know, he still go out, you know, that time of morning. More than a year later, we visit the church. It's Saturday. Not many people are around. We're there to talk to Johnny Daniels, a deacon at New Season Apostolic Ministries Incorporated. When we show up, he's trying to fix the church microphone before the service the next day. A few other members of the church are in the sanctuary with him, not doing anything in particular. We go into a small room of the church. It looks like it's meant for Sunday school classes. Johnny takes a seat across from us. He's black, a little wide, but not very tall. He has a beard that's just about ready for a trim and glasses. He's wearing a black shirt and jeans. Johnny's also wearing a hat with a cross on it that's hard to miss. It's basically a symbol for how he wears his faith, boldly. You know, like I always tell, every, used to tell everyone, once I became the supervisor of the food ministry, 
Yes, I was a supervisor, but he was in charge. You know, he made sure everybody did their job and did it expediently, you know, no slacking, you know, so. But uh, over those years, oh man, he became like a brother. That was my Superman, you know. Every opportunity I got to do things, he would, I got this, you go talk to the people, set up, do what you do, let me do this, you know, so. He was my Superman, he, you know, he, he ran the show. A few months ago, the church renamed the food pantry in honor of Ronnie. There's a sign outside of it now with a photo on it calling him the Superman of service. In the picture, Ronnie is dressed in a green suit and a dark colored tie. His hands are to his sides. His face looks serious, as it does in every photo we've seen of him. It could be easy to see him as sort of a tough guy, but Johnny doesn't describe him that way at all. Ronnie was warm, loving, and devoted most of his time to helping people who needed it the most. Johnny can't forget the morning Ronnie was killed. He and his wife showed up to the church just before 5.30 in the morning. As soon as they turned onto Nebraska Avenue, they saw the lights in the distance. Johnny was hoping the lights were coming from Hillsborough Avenue, a few blocks north. But as they got closer, he realized they were right in front of his church. And before I could even get out of my car, everybody rushed me. It was like trying to keep me from coming around the corner, you know, and told me what happened. And I didn't know what to think at that time. I thought it was a joke. I didn't know what to think at that time until I got around the corner and got out there and seen him laying in the street. The food pantry isn't just somewhere people grab food every once in a while and leave. In some ways, it's like a family. Many of the people they help come out every week. Johnny knows many of them by name. And if he doesn't know their name, he recognizes their faces. He encourages all of them to get to know each other, to fellowship, they learn about each other's families and jobs. So losing Ronnie was like losing a member of their family. And they didn't just lose him. They watched him die. What followed Ronnie's murder was a larger sense of fear for Johnny. More and more police poured into the neighborhood. He couldn't sleep at night, worried about his family's safety and the safety of the people who waited outside twice a week for the food pantry. He kept praying, asking God to reveal who the killer was, to bring him to justice. It made me say one thing every day. I need y'all to do something. That was it. Do something. And that, you know, for them to, to them, catch him. That's all I would say to whichever police was here when I got here on those days. Do something. That was it. Like everyone touched by these murders, Johnny is now living a new normal. He's not the same man he was before Ronnie was killed. He's more cautious now when he goes out. Mostly, he's more afraid for the people the food pantry helps. Now, no one's there to keep them safe. They don't have that guardian angel anymore that comes out early when they come out to watch over them. So I constantly tell them when they do come early, stay in groups. If you need to, just stay in your car till you see me get here. Once I get here, then you're safe again. So, you know, I continually tell them that, preach that to them all the time. Maybe Ronnie is still looking over the food pantry in some way. The numbers have grown since the church named the program after him. They now feed about 200 people a week. 
Many of the people who come knew Ronnie or know his story. Sometimes they're even brought to tears when they see that photo of him on the sign outside. Ronnie loved the pantry so much that he got up hours before the sun just to make sure that everyone in line felt a little safer. He was doing that before the killings and only increased his efforts afterwards. Keeping him alive through the food pantry feels like the perfect tribute. Before his death, Ronnie started making some big changes in his life. Johnny says he just stopped smoking, he was going to church again, and instead of just helping others, Ronnie was also helping himself. When Johnny was trying to make sense of why his friend was killed, when he was doing so much good for himself and others, he turns to God. When the devil know that you that the Lord has you now, then he come at you a little harder, a little stronger, you know. And but I feel the way I feel is that the Lord brought him home, protecting his children out here because he didn't want to see Ronnie going back to where he was once before. So that was a blessing for him. Part of Johnny believes that Ronnie knew what was going to happen that morning. That's why he gave everyone hugs instead of handshakes. And that's why he chose the exact moment to walk across the street. He knew a killer was coming. Ronnie didn't wear a cape or have magic powers. But to everyone he helped and worked with at the pantry, he was Superman. And even the real Superman died. In the comics, he's killed by Doomsday, who was paving a path of destruction across the country, putting lives of innocent people in danger. The Man of Steel protected them in the only way that he could at that moment with his life. Johnny believes Ronnie was doing the same thing. He took those bullets so no one else had to. That's how Johnny wants us to remember Ronald Felton, not as a man who was murdered by a serial killer, as a hero. Superman, that's it. Superman, Superman. Just remember Superman, that's it. Let's backtrack a bit to day 36. It's Monday, November 13th, 2017. We want to introduce you to someone, Howell Donaldson III. But everyone calls him Trey. This is the same Trey who you met in episode two, the one who asked his friend where to get a gun. That was almost two weeks ago. Right now, he's staying in Tampa with his ex-girlfriend, Nicole Minnis, and Nicole's mother, Sandra Swan. Sandra's given him permission to stay in her garage bedroom for a few days. He doesn't bring much with him, just some garbage bags full of clothes and his red Mustang. The car is an older model with two black racing stripes, starting at the hood and going straight back to the trunk. Not exactly conspicuous. Tonight, Howell turns in a little early, not so early that Nicole or Sandra would be suspicious. It's about 8.30 when he tells them he's heading to bed for the night. He usually doesn't stay up too late, so the women don't find his early bedtime strange. A couple of hours later, they also turn in for the night, or so they think. At 4 a.m., Sandra wakes up. This is her talking to police weeks later. That boy got up in the night, and he left out this door. Front door. He went out this door and went out. And when he went out, he... Sandra explains to police she just put something on her door to stop it from slamming. But before, it would make a loud sound whenever anyone closed it. Okay. Well, my dog sleeps with me and he woke up crazy barking. The door wasn't locked. I came here. Did you hear the door slam? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what woke you? 
and the dog was going crazy. Okay. And I looked out here. I looked out like this. Well, that red car was gone. Had it been parked there earlier in the evening? Yes. Or the, I guess the evening before? Yes. Okay. I went ahead and put my dad bolt on. And I was pissed. Sandra assumes Howell has an early shift at work. Nothing about it really raises any red flags, although she's still angry he woke her up. She goes back to sleep, but she only gets rest for about a couple of hours. Around 6 a.m., someone is at the door. She can't remember if she hears the banging or the doorbell. Nicole remembers hearing the doorbell, but she didn't really wake up to see what was going on, just went back to sleep. Either way, it wakes Sandra up, again. She goes to answer the door, it's Howell. I opened that door and I said, what, what? And he said, I had to go, I had to, I had to go, I had to go, mm, check my schedule. And I thought, you lying. And I thought, this is sketchy. This is so sketchy. Who gets up that time of day to go to work or go check a schedule? When Sandra asks herself this question, she doesn't realize how terrifying the truth could be. What if Howell wasn't checking his work schedule? What if he was killing someone in cold blood right in the middle of the street? Next, on the finale of 51 Days of Terror. So he handed me the bag and he said, uh, pause me, you're not going to look at it. I said, okay. I get a phone call. So, well, we don't know what we have here, but we have a gun uh, that was given to one of our cops and it's the same make and model of what we're looking for. I'm just trying to get my education. I just want to further my career. I just want to just want to do good in the world. That's not true. He doesn't have the personality of that characteristic that they're giving him. He did not premeditate which person he was going to kill. He did not stalk them. He did not um, consider in advance which how he's going to commit his crimes. It seemed like he only did it I mean, moments before he thought of killing people. This is the person I'm going to select. Because this the guy. Okay, you murdered those people. Fifty One Days of Terror is hosted by me, Amanda Shivari. It is written and executive produced by Brianti Downing. Kelly Hatton is our associate producer. Editing by Dallas Cotton. Heather Monahan is our digital producer. Tim Price is our digital editor. Additional reporting done by Brianti Downing and me. Thank you to everyone who talked to us about the investigation and especially the victims. We're honored to tell their stories.